Hello, Ash. Um, it's wonderful to see and be hearing you. It's been a it's been like three weeks, I think. Yeah, it's been a little bit, but I'm super excited to be here and I'm glad that we started this podcast after I got all of my singing out in the pre-show. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded great. Yeah, I got I got a uh, uh, sad emojis from the next room actually uh, texting that they could they could hear me singing. So I guess we won't be carrying that forth into this episode. Oh but man! Yeah, yeah, we're we're nice and warm. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's right. The pipes have been warmed up, and we're ready to talk about stuff. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Uh, anything kind of fun going on on your side these days? Yeah. Well, um, yeah, it's definitely, um, been, been some interesting things that we've been, I've been in the browser world a little bit more as of late than, than I usually have been. And that's always been fun to, to kind of get back to, cause I don't code as much these days as I would like to in, in my day job. And so being able to just play around and remember, how much um, or realize is, is actually the right word, realize how much my brain has let fall out of it, um, like in terms of React or configuring React. Um, so like there's a, there's, a, there's a little bit of sadness with that. It's like, oh man, I know this used to come really easy and now it doesn't. But on the flip side is like, um, it, it, it was really cool being able to build some, you know, just for fun things that weren't, weren't didn't have huge stakes attached to them. Um, so that's been, that's been nice in the day job. Um, and then, uh, actually just today we wrapped up the, uh, we connect the dots codeathon that we mentioned in the last episode. And there's definitely some things that, uh, that, that we should chat about, I think, uh, in regards to that, but it's always just a pleasure to see like the creativity of the students. Um, these are 13 to 18 year olds. Um, they're new to the technology world, but they like they just have such the such cool imaginations and their energy levels are something else. The way they collaborate with each other is something else. And um, you you know, like this is not necessarily um, something they do every day, whereas we, we do video calls and presentations all the time. Um, and, but it's new for them. Um, but they all did such an amazing job. But there's definitely some interesting bits where. Um, that I want to talk about in terms of it leads a little bit into developer experience, but also just how we set some things up in terms of learning environments and the like. Um, but yeah, so it's been an it's been a great day already um, and um, seen some really cool stuff with some students. How about you? Uh, my, my weekend was much more relaxed. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure like something, some part of what you were working on this weekend with the students is like, you know, very rewarding and in its own way fun. Um for us, I think we've been kind of just purposely having some down weekends where we can just kind of chill and yes. hang out. So uh, no, nothing super interesting here. I didn't really even end up coding that much this weekend. The heresy. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's like every once in a while, I, I found myself just kind of more outside, uh, oddly. Um, plus, like the weather is like freakish, freakish freakishly warm here in right? new york and you, so you gotta use you gotta take advantage of that yeah you gotta i mean it's frightening on one hand that it's 50 something degrees in new york in in mid-january but i know right i guess late january but still um you may as well so uh mostly kind of a, a bit outside and just kind of catching up on life things a little mm -hmm. bit but yeah it's you know kind of thinking through like um you you mentioned the hackathon reminded me about uh like I, I did this thing and I'm 
going to forget the name of the program, but this was back in 2015 here in, in New York City, where they had um, basically what they were calling like high school student entrepreneurs. Oh, yeah. And a program designed to help fan the flames of like kids that age that had ideas. And my my part of all of that was to be like, quote unquote, the web development instructor. And so I mm-hmm. want to say it was maybe like twice a week I would go to NYU where they were donating space for those students to come in and and think through projects and not all of it. It wasn't meant to be necessarily like you're all building software projects, Mm -hmm. but regardless of what they were going to do, um, you know, just as one example, I remember one group of the students decided they were going to do like a shop to sell penny boards, um, which are like, small skateboards that's <laughs> i learned everything i know about penny boards during that program in 2015 <laughs> but they're basically small skateboards was my understanding but anyways that even that itself like if okay great if that's what you're going to do you needed an online component right. to you know sell or get the word out or whatever so that that's where i came in and mm-hmm. working with the students was a lot of fun um you know cuz there's part of it where you're like those students all started that program with basically no knowledge or mm-hmm. extremely limited knowledge um, about web development. And by the end of it, yeah, they'd all built websites and stuff. And um, we had them, geez, this was 2015. I think we had them using like bootstrap on the front end or something like that. Yes. But, but it was one of those things where you, if you can introduce the building blocks initially, Mm-hmm. There's that whole middle period when people are building out projects where it really does take on a life of its own, especially with kids that age like, oh, yeah. that just surprise you. Um, so I think it's, I haven't spent a lot of time in that world with kids that age, you know, high school students learning web development, but what little I have seen, my take on it was there's, there's kind of like one introducing the building blocks, if you will, in a way that does not overwhelm yes is important because Mm -hmm. if you can get them past that now they have like all these lego blocks and they can go wild with it and then on the other end of it is the other treacherous moment which is okay we just built something how do we give it to the world (laughs) and i i think you you ran into (laughs) you mentioned that that was kind of like part of uh, some stuff that you were thinking about which is Mm -hmm. okay you have students who just like did a hackathon for a few days now they're ready to show their stuff off or I, I don't know, maybe move it to prod even. Um, mm-hmm. And how do you how do you do that without it suddenly all breaking? Yeah. And man, it is it is um, something that comes up just about every year. Um, and it always comes up almost too late um, is like, I mean, cause they're working on all their stuff. They're, they're, they're going to be changing things until the very last minute. Cause they're polishing, they're, they're tweaking. They're trying to, to, you know, Oh, we should add this other bit of social media or we should add this feature and Oh shoot, everything's broken. Let me go fix it up. So it's always put off to the last minute, this, this idea of publishing so that uh, their content can be reviewed or judged or shared with the world. And, um, Back when I first started doing this with um, We Connect the Dots, um, this would have been uh, just about five years ago when we when we were all still in person, um, like about the only option at that point in time that was free was like GitHub pages. And so all of our stuff is geared around doing it with GitHub pages. Um, but 
of course, times have changed, moved along, and we've got more more hosting out there that is free and accessible to students where it's not like they're having to pay a huge monthly fee or anything like that. Um, but also like um, there's always these 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 funny little edge cases that we run into because these students can be building in a in a um, range of um, uh, environments, right? They might be um, in, in fact, in, in this, this codathon alone, I saw some of them building locally, which was great to see a uh, straight up visual studio code. Some of them building their site in uh, REPL it, which is a great tool. Uh, another one building in code sandbox, which is also a really great tool. Um, but that also means that every one of them has a slightly different perspective on how the site, the, the, what they have built is actually working. And there's all sorts of configurations that are going on behind the scene to make this a nice, easy sandbox environment, a nice playground to, to you know, do the right thing that the user is, is expecting to. And then like the last step in the process before they, we hand off to the judges is publish your site to and, and get a URL that you can share. Like it's not you, you're not sharing the sandbox environment with the judges. You're sharing the site with the judges. And so it's either get it's usually a, a GitHub pages. That was the first one that we, we ran into. Um, but then another team was trying it with Netlify. And both cases, we ran into something like an interesting problem, like with 30 minutes or in particular one team, <laughs> five minutes to spare. Oh, five uh, minutes. Yeah, the stress was through the roof. Um, they, they, they finally figured out another path that that fixed it. But it, it made an interesting... Um, it, it led to some interesting thoughts in my brain just about how we set um, like these these young students up for success and the stuff that we as experienced developers kind of take for granted. Um, like, for example, the GitHub pages, um, which I love publishing to GitHub pages. These are students who have, you know, many of them have just learned about uh, href and, and, and the file system and linking files together. And so a common pattern that they do is they use absolute reference uh, paths. Mm -hmm. And so like uh, one of the examples was slash images slash some other file. And then we published it to GitHub pages and the link is broken because GitHub pages is not putting the root of your the source code at the root. It's your GitHub pages.io slash your your name slash your repo name mm -hmm. and it yes it's obvious when i think about it that okay now all the, all the absolute references are going to be broken but this panics the students to no end because all of a sudden half the you know their links are dead their their images are dead because on their local machine or their their sandbox the slash and the root of their project were the same it's their it's their first works on my machine problem exactly yeah Big wow. time. so and can, yeah, I, can yeah. I just ask there yes. on, on that specific I know this is just a, an example but I'm curious on that specific example is it that they were lacking the username and repo name that was breaking it yes and that was part of the challenge is that because they were building on say code sandbox or their local machine like they, they didn't have to worry about the, this mm -hmm. idea of putting in their GitHub account or their, their, the repo name because the, the web server is started from the package root. 
And really, you couldn't, right? Because that would right. that, that would because break everything your local on local. Previews are broken, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so as they were iterating, that was all going to fall apart. And that was our challenge: is okay, if they still need to make changes, how do we correct this problem for them? Because if we fix it for GitHub, all their local previews are broken, and like it's thirty minutes before submission time. So you know, good luck getting this all explained. And so uh, one of the other instructors um, on the call, thankfully, remembered, oh, GitHub has this wonderful little hack that if you name the repo uh, the same as your username.github.io, it just puts that at the root. Um, And it doesn't have the repo name. It's treating it as your personal GitHub page. And that fixes the problem for now. <laughs> for now. But that that that's like a one time you get one right. one of those, right? One of those. Yeah. And they're going to want to eventually publish other things. And so it's going to be a problem going forward. But it was like in those little few minutes, like this is this is the solution for now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it just it, it raised like we are usually fairly comfortable in dealing with, OK, I'm going to do with relative paths or because I'm publishing to a, a full-on server or, you know, that I own and a domain that I own, like I can control all those things. When you're into the free territory, you're kind of at the whim of however GitHub or wherever has set everything up. And um, because that is not our typical experience in a lot of cases, or we've already built in a way to work around it because of how we develop, um, it can even be surprising for us. Is like both, uh, all of us kind of stared at it for a couple minutes going, why is this not working? It should work. It looks right. The code is right. The, the you know, forgetting that the absolute path meant something on GitHub pages versus on your local machine. Wow, what an experience. And <laughs> you're trying to troubleshoot all of this on the web or like over Zoom <laughs> yes. as well with people kind of like frantically trying to hit a, yes. a deadline coming in. Yes. I mean, when you said 30 minutes, that sounded really short, but the the five minute people, um, did, <laughs> did, did we get everybody over the line today or like how did. Did, how did that? Nice. Um, nice. We w- uh, that was going to be an even harder challenge. So the first one was just with people who had just gotten accustomed to um, absolute paths versus relative paths, all that jazz. And that, 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 I mean, really when you think about it, that's a hard thing um, to, to grok when this is all brand new, you're just learning about HTML and CSS and file paths and how do you do rel- relativity and all that jazz. These were a group of students who had gone through that. They were, they went through advanced JavaScript. They were building a react app and they were building locally. So they had every, everything worked on their machine. It looked great. It was, you know, ready to go. We're going to push the button and they chose we're going to push to Netlify. So already they've kind of gone, they've avoided the GitHub problem because Netlify uses subdomains. So there's never any problem that that the slash doesn't always mean the root uh, of your project. But um, the way we teach React frequently is uh, we use router components uh, to, to support multiple pages. And the right way to do that when you're going to production and everything is to use the browser router. So using URLs um, with like uh, pages and all the like. And that's the right way to teach it. That's the right way to build it. The problem is you publish that to Netlify and your page stops working. The index, the the entry point works fine, but you click a link or click another tab in your page that that changes the the web address and it all falls to pieces. I really want to even have a guess as to why this is happening. Can you guess? I cannot off the top of my head. This is not a situation I found myself in recently. 
but I'm super curious as to why. Why? Well, the reason why makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Like if you were just to strip React out of it, um, basically what you've got is you've got React, you, you've got Webpack building a bundle, and it's generating index.html. So the entry point is fine, but Webpack isn't by default in, in a lot of our very simple setups, building all the other HTML files. And so when you publish it to Netlify, you've just got index.html, your JavaScript bundle. And yet when you use browser router, you're pointing to other URLs and your local environment, for whatever reason, in terms of how it had been configured, handled that fine. Um, for whatever reason, I'm actually kind of a little bit confused as to how it worked in the first place, but they, they, they it was working for them. Um, but then when you published, it wanted to have about.html on the server, and that didn't exist. So in other words, locally, those were being just-in-time compiled. Yes. And it wasn't happening yes. on Netlify. Yes. And was this this was a, a bundler problem, or what, what? I'm really curious what the solve was here. Well, the solve that we, if we had the right amount of time, the solve was going to be this, is there were a couple of paths. We could tell Netlify to have um, basically treat all endpoints as pointing at index.html. That would be one way. That would solve the problem temporarily. It's not the right way to do it for production by any stretch of the imagination. But that has a chance of succeeding in five minutes. Um, we didn't go that route. Um, the other route was if you had more time, switch from browser router to hash router so that you could use the um, the hashtag and then uh, mm. the page names there. And that way you only have to worry about index.html. The, the routing is all done through um, the extra hash there. And that would have worked, but try explaining that to panic students and submission is due in five minutes. Plus they have to commit that code to GitHub, you know, run into fresh build, publish that to Netlify. Um, so... The crazy thing is, is, is the solve wasn't actually a solve. The solve was, oh, hey, we have, we can publish to Replit. Replit has a URL. As long as it is, as long as you have run your site within like the last 30 minutes or so, like Replit keeps a version of that going. So I can hit it with a nicer URL uh, that doesn't load the rest of the um, sandbox environment. And that's what they shared with the judges. And Replit, it works just fine on Replit. Like it's doing all the just-in-time stuff the same way that you did, would do on a local environment, but it doesn't work when you push to things like Netlify. I, we didn't try Vercel. Vercel might have gone better, but that is like the challenge of like browser router is the right way, but there's more steps required to actually make it work the right way. And and then you find out when you click the button to send it, oops, this doesn't work. <laughs> I wonder if the reason I haven't run into this recently is that I've been playing around a bit more with uh, static site generators. Mm -hmm. And yes, you would already have all of those pages compiled. Yes. As a matter of fact, I think that that was kind of, it took me a second to walk back into that when I finally got to, oh, wait, these pages don't exist yet. Mm -hmm. But when you're doing something with, say, like a Next.js or something like that, you yes. you are pushing every one of those files. Yeah. And there is some sort of like, you know, post, I'm going to use all the wrong words off the top of my head, but like that, that post compile sort of step where you can still have interactivity or like uh, data load. Uh, mm -hmm. Once you hit the browser, you could, you still have that optionality. You have to build for that. But um, I don't think I've ever found myself in a situation there where I expected a page to exist that did not. 
Yeah. And that would have been another perfectly valid option, say, for the fact that it was not built in a way that w- that you could just say, oh, run the static site generator and here's all, all the content out. That actually wouldn't be a bad idea to, to revise the curriculum, perhaps to include that. But it's like one of those things that like for me is... Um, especially in my day job, whenever I've had to use React in the past, it's either been for UXP, which is in our in the Adobe products, not a browser. You're you, if you're using routing, you're using hash routers because there is no concept of navigate to another web page, or um, you're you're in the context of smaller apps that like they're highly interactive, they're highly. Um, um, uh, like, but they're like little mini kind of things. They're they're mm-hmm. they're like a panel or something like that. You're not building a huge on ten page, hundred page web website. You're building a small little app, and so your routing needs are different. And so if you're going to be tracking it with a router, again, you're probably going to go with a hash router. And so like for me, that world I don't have to worry about. All I need to publish is index and the bundle, and I'll be fine. Um, and yet by the time like that only works for certain cases. And it's kind of funny that when you get into this environment and it's working all fine locally and then you try to push it out and it's like, oh shoot, now I am into a realm where it's like, yep, I know this exists, but I haven't had to think about it for, for, for far too long. Um, and all the fixes are non, non-trivial for five minutes anyway. You could use it if you, if you caught it soon enough, you could use it as a teaching moment and say, here's how you would address it. Um, that doesn't fly when you have five minutes remaining before you submit your project. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, and I, I think you know rerouting them to <laughs> rerouting them, so to speak, <laughs> is to send them to I don't know, like go and now you're going to build on top of a static site generator. Like that, that's a lot of stuff you've got to learn. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think that like that's one of those things where. Um, I'm glad you like found some sort of temporary solution in place so that they didn't like, cause you know, let's, let's build on top of a different framework and, and all of that kind of thing wouldn't have gotten them there in time. <laughs> no. And, and you want them to feel successful and actually say, yeah, you've gotten something out the door. You, you've presented it to, to the group. Um, the worst thing to come out of that is like you get to the finish line and then you're stopped because X, Y, Z. And that leaves, especially for 13 to 18 year olds, you want to, you want to leave them wanting more and thinking that this is something that they could really build a career out of and, and, and learn more about. And it's like, Oh shoot. Like those last minute, you know, heart attacks have the potential to be like, Nope, not for me, not going to do it. And um, thankfully we were able to find ways that everyone got past it. Um, But it's kind of like that whole, you know, don't, don't, don't send a production on a Friday. And and we've learned that lesson many many times. Um, you don't want to have to be working under that kind of pressure to try and solve a district a, a, a like a, a production or a publishing problem. But um, like this is the first round for a lot of these students, and oh boy, <laughs> the, the little bits of panic in in their their voices um, is like you know, it really tears at you. It's like, oh my goodness, like we will figure this out. I mean, thankfully we were as instructors there and mentors there, we're, we've had the experience, but um, that first first round of panic is is something else. So we, you know, you got them to all to have something where they could go out and share it and feel some accomplishment. So th- that's awesome. Like kind of helping them 
get all that stuff wrapped up. And again, that's always a, a super difficult inflection point in the in any project, to be honest, but especially if you're a student uh, participating in a hackathon or something like that. On the front end, we you know we talked a little, or on the front side of that whole process, right? We talked a little bit already about you want to also give them that smooth onboarding so that mm-hmm. they know what they have to play with and, uh, yeah. and kind of like let them let their imaginations go wild once they have initially those those initial Lego blocks in their hands. So I think last time we chatted, you know, when we talked about JavaScript notebooks, you were planning mm-hmm. on using that as one of the ways to help them yes. like get oriented into this world. So I'm curious, uh, did, did you end up using uh, something like RunKit as a tool for that? Or, um, you know, what, what did you end up doing? And just curious how it went. Yeah, so we ended up using a mix. Um, I used RunKit. Uh, so we, we taught instruction over about three day period. And um, I was able to use RunKit for a good majority of that. RunKit works really well when you're trying to illustrate um, small component, small um, features of the language. Like, how do you do an array? Because the challenging thing is, like, I can do all of that stuff in, like, Code Sandbox or um, Replit or what have you. But inevitably, that means I have to log it to the console and I have to open the JavaScript console or whatever their their variation of that is. And it's not quite as immediate. Like, it's it's harder to draw the connection between here's the console log statement sitting in my editor and here's the output. Especially because a lot of times, like like with CodePen and the others, like, they're always refreshing constantly as I make changes. So it can even be hard to, to grok that this particular console log was from this particular execution. So for the most part, I was able to use RunKit and that worked really well when I wanted to demonstrate, you know, here's how you set up an array. Here's how you iterate over an array. Here's how you might um, uh, apply uh, a function and um, create some HTML elements out of it, for example. All of that worked really well, I think, and, and, and kind of drove it home. And um, I'd still do that again. Um, the challenging thing um, is when you start getting into the last half of the instruction is taking uh, unifying the advanced JavaScript bits with the web bits that they already have learned in the previous session. And so you, you want to kind of bring it back and say, yes, we're talking about advanced JavaScript, but here's how you might use it in a browser. And so get to talk about things like event handlers and um, a little bit of async programming and like making fetch calls to the network. And it's at that point that RunKit kind of stops being ideal because now you're back into building web page land, um, which means I need to have some HTML somewhere. I need to have a like a, a bit of HTML and CSS so I, I can place a button so that my JavaScript can go grab Uh, the button reference and attach an event listener. And so that's about the point when I switched over to using CodePen. Um, Any of the other sandboxes would have worked, um, but was able to uh, have like all the the small examples with CodePen because it's like across the top and then you have the majority of the page below it. And that worked pretty, pretty well for that because then you can say, here's the button on the page. Here's the JavaScript that's going to react when I click the button. And then it goes and does a thing, you know, dynamically, especially when you get into what are timeouts and intervals and updating the page automatically. One of our examples is, you know, like, you know, you know, adding a clock or um, something to the page so that you can see, like, 
this thing is continuing on. It's not um, just sequential programming. It's 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 uh, there's all these callbacks that are happening, and like that's not going to work for a run kit because like it's it's very much step by step by step. You run each step sequentially. You eventually get down to a result. What happened? You know how how in the world do you set a timeout for a, a you know, a second later to update something you've already done. Maybe there's a way with RunKit, but um, that felt like it was going to be a little bit too too much of a lift to 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 explain why why it's working here versus how it works in a browser. So at that point, we just switched over to CodePen, um, which is a little bit more challenging because RunKit it's it's immediate code output code output, and in a browser the code is sitting up up, up here on the browser. Um, and the output is down in the browser window and, you know, your JavaScript may, it, there, there's a lot of bits where it's, it's harder to make the connection that this little bit of code is doing this. Um, and that can be challenging. And, um, thankfully, like once, uh, you know, all the level three students that we had this time, like they had learned those lessons because they were able to take those into react land then, um, but it is, it is not the easiest thing to, to grok the first time through as like, oh, there's this button on the page and I can go look it up and I can add something to it that will, that will fire or react when the user does something. It's not all sequentially, um, you know, one after the other. And that definitely took a little bit of work to, to, to convey that to the students. Yeah. Making, making that leap from that procedural or sequential type of coding that you, inevitably do when you're getting started because you know we're gonna make an array and then we're gonna do something to that array and then we're gonna hit run or whatever the equivalent mm -hmm. is to run and then see the result and move, moving away from that into things like you know in javascript having callbacks yes or um you know in the browser for example working with events um and and seeing that that code lives on and and can um come back you know, at, at certain times mm -hmm. is th that's a pretty big leap in the beginning for, for students, I think. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things that as an experienced developer, like it just comes, it feels like it comes naturally. It's like, yeah, you know, why is this a hard concept? And yet um, it's, it's definitely something that um, even when I was learning programming many, many years ago, um, before browsers were really a thing anyway. Um, like you, you, you did things sequentially and if you had to wait for something, you would just sit in a tight little loop and you'd pull, you, you know, you, but you still thought sequentially and in a browser world, like, no, it's, it's, it's the user that can enter, you know, start trigger certain actions or the network might refinely respond because like network requests take time. Um, and all these things now really complicate the flow of my code and so um, it can even kind of show itself in terms of w one of the requirements was that they use some form of machine learning. And there's a teachable machine by Google, um, which gives you some uh, simple imaged, uh, image based uh, differentiation, which is really nice. You can give it two categories and it will try to say, oh, it's this category or that category, which is really kind of cool. It gives you a snippet of JavaScript at the end and that you can just copy paste. Um, the downside is, of course, um, unless you've gone all the way through the more advanced JavaScript, you don't really have a good understanding as to why that code works. And so some of the challenge, we had one team where they were trying to use two models from Teachable Machine 
And of course, it doesn't know you're trying to put these on the same page. It just gave you gives you the exact same code that you repeat. And lo and behold, we have variable uh, co uh, collisions. This name is already defined. You can't do that. And it's like, oh, shoot, you know, the, it's it, it didn't bear this in mind. And it took a while, finally got that figured out. It's like, but now you have to do surgery on the JavaScript to make it right. And, but it's all asynchronous. It's like, here's starting a webcam and then you're going to get some of the stuff back and it needs to know where to put it in the web page. So which element is attached to. And that is like, when you've been in it for a while, it all kind of makes sense. It's like, yeah, this is how I would figure it out. But how in the world, especially to someone who's never seen JavaScript before, that can be some, you know, some, uh, you, <laughs> Uh, elder god territory of, of fear is like how in the world does this work and why can't i make it work kind of thing um it's a lot yeah. of concepts to pull together yes. uh and uh cer certain things that again like you know when we think about for example just even having something like a storage layer just mm -hmm. as a basic thing i think we talked about this last time even but you could write the code and then now it's like so i'm i'm getting some data i want from the user i want to put it somewhere well th th that's a whole other universe now you get to learn about whereas like you know in the beginning it can kind of seemed like oh you know like learn this one language and kind of just do whatever but the reality right. of course is you're going to find yourself in all of these different areas of the stack or these different technologies yeah. and um part of it is not just the coding and i think that's mm -hmm. pretty easy to not understand in the beginning which is yes. you know like honestly a lot of it's just like learning about the underlying thing that you will you'll you'll use javascript as an example you'll use the language to interact with some technology but the the real unlock is going to be sitting down and um, spending time understanding what that is that you're interacting with exactly yeah and um being able then to you know take that those learnings apply them to the next you know the next bit of technology because technology is always evolving like those are the huge benefits that i see of this but like I, I just even think back to when I learned programming, of course, as, um, as a kid, this, you know, browser didn't, I was on a Commodore 64. So, you know, very small machine, ancient machine. It's not going to, you know, don't have to worry about all of these things. Um, but it also was a different approach to learning how to program. You only had to learn one language and on that, uh, it was basic on the Commodore 64. Whereas a lot of times when we say, oh, learn to build a website, you're learning at least three languages. You're learning HTML, you're learning CSS, and there's always a little bit of JavaScript in there. Mm -hmm. And so that right, even right there is, is a big uh, hurdle to overcome. And it, it just amazes me that the students, like they're amazing students, they do overcome that hurdle. Um, but it is definitely a different way of learning programming where like even with Python, you could say, oh, you're just going to learn the language to start. But with JavaScript in the browser, like, nope, you're going to learn all these different layers in one fell swoop. <laughs> Yep. Yeah. Pretty much from the beginning. If you want to put something on the screen, that's not mm -hmm. just uh, some kind of serif font text, right? <laughs> you're you're going to be at least doing CSS and that quickly gets into JavaScript as well. Yes. So yeah. yeah, it's a, and again, like if you want to get into data storage at some point, you are going to have to learn SQL, Yes. <laughs> learn SQL, learn, learn about, you know, relational models and then, oh, and then you'll have to eventually learn about how the, you know, networking works because mm -hmm. at some point you will be connecting to a back end 
And how do you, uh, that was one of the fun things that we had to uh, briefly cover is uh, we were using the Star Wars API to say, here's how you could fetch and retrieve data. That's a good API. When I you're love getting API, started. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's great. It's free. Doesn't require any API keys. You can just go hit it. Um, but then the immediate thing back is like, oh, you get the response back and it's in JSON format. We talked about objects. No big deal. How do you explain HTTP response codes? Because at the very beginning, it's like, oh, you need to check. Is the response 200 or is it in the OK range versus the error range and all that jazz? And it's like it, it, it suddenly now you're having to think about how networks work and how servers work. And it just it just rabbit holes from there. <laughs> That's cool. Um, I mean, it's it's just it is amazing how much goes into it. Um, and <laughs> I guess I ran into this at some point where I was kind of thinking about how to explain things like HTTP codes in a way that isn't just like read the MDM doc. Right. <laughs> uh, because that's that's I mean, they're good, but that's still a lot to hand somebody who's just kind of getting started. Mm -hmm. It's just all text on a page. I have somewhere on my shelf here, I'm trying to turn around and not totally, uh, here we go, not totally ignore my microphone. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've got this this book. It's a, I'm sure you're familiar with No Starch Press. They mm -hmm. make a bunch of interesting books about programming and technology and stuff. So I've got this one called How the Internet Really Works. And it's this illustrated hardcover little book um, I, I, I'm not sure if this is like, you still might not necessarily hand this book even to a beginner because ultimately yeah. like if you're, if you're there to put web pages on the screen, you, you kind of don't totally need to know all of these things in, <laughs> in, in the beginning. Right. Like right. certainly if you're prepping for a hackathon, like starting with <laughs> how packets work or whatever, like that's probably not like your the best use of your time. We'll lose them all right then and there. <laughs> yeah. Even if it does have a cute cat on a computer. Um, it does. So, you know, but but I, I have found this uh this book to be an interesting one and one that I recommend occasionally to people. Yeah. That sounds like a good one to have in the library, especially for uh anyone who does get interested in the, those next steps of, oh yeah, I, I've built something and now I want to connect it to a back end and but now I need to learn how all of that stuff works. Yep. Um, so kind of switching gears for just a second. Um, in some ways, I've seen a lot of uh, parallels with something that's been on my mind a little bit this month. Mm -hmm. And I mentioned it last time, which is Safari web extensions. Yes. <laughs> and, it, I, you know, this is going to be uh, something I wanted to talk about is just kind of like what I've seen so far. This mm -hmm. is by no means going to be a definitive guide to Safari web extensions. Um, I don't even I haven't seen if that guide even exists in the universe, to be honest. Um, but what I've been doing is kind of basically I had something in mind that I wanted to build and kind of started stumbling into it. But a lot of the things that we've been talking about here, whether it's like learning how to handle events being able to, you know, in one fell swoop, make sure that you're handling your HTML, CSS, and JavaScript mm -hmm. in the right ways and all of that kind of stuff, um, storing data, um, all of these kind of things kind of pop up in building a web extension. So um, why am I doing this? Yes, that, that was my first question. Why Safari web extensions? Oh, no, I was asking you, why am I oh. doing this? <laughs> why are you doing this? Oh, no, I don't know. Um, well, here's the thing. So um, 
I well, one, basically I had I found myself with more time than I knew what to do with over the holidays. <laughs> um, so uh, on one hand, I overplanned my child's uh, sixth birthday party, uh, which was super fun, but a lot of work in the end. And then on the other hand, I was like, hey, here's a minor problem or annoyance I have. I wonder how I could fix this. Mm-hmm. Oh, um, I'm looking for extensions on Safari because that's my daily driver browser. And um, lo and behold, Safari, of course, was the only browser that did not have an extension for this problem. So what, <laughs> what is the problem? Well, the problem is this. If you use Zoom at work, and I'm sure other platforms are also um, contributing to this. As a matter of fact, I know they are, and I can enumerate a few of them in a moment. But let's just start with Zoom. Mm-hmm. So if you're using Zoom at work, um, look, let's face it, you're probably on zoom five or six times a day i know i am i know i am and carrie i I have a sense that you are on your uh all the time as well whatever it is you're using so one of the things that i just really find obnoxious over times is that it litters your browser with tabs telling you it is launching the application yes so uh, teams is is my my big offender here it drives me up the wall yeah let's hear it let's hear it so the, let's get them all out because i don't want to just like beat up on zoom here but teams does it slack does it when you're clicking on a slack link and it needs yes. to launch slack notion does it mm-hmm. um Blue notion's jeans. actually by the way notion's recently um in, introduced the setting where it will let you actually state to the browser i guess that like from now on anytime i click a notion url i want you to open the the actual app oh interesting but it still opens that interstitial web web tab and so look i'm sure there's lots of other examples of this kind of thing i think google meet does it um which is something i'm starting to use a lot more now Mm -hmm. um there's probably a good reason why that has to happen but I don't want all of these tabs sitting on my, you know, in my browser, just open all of the time. For Especially one, it, when you already have 50 other important tabs sitting there. Yeah, 50. Other, exactly. And so like now I'm kind of like going through and it's like, so I've got 50 tabs, but 10 of these are <laughs> yes. Zoom links or yes. like dead Zoom pages, basically. So um, there's a there's a browser extension out there for all Chromium based browsers called something like closed zoom tabs it's like very on the nose like this is we're gonna do this exact one thing <laughs> which is amazing right right and um so i i thought oh this is really neat um let's let me just go grab that for safari it doesn't exist and i thought hmm i really wonder why and i think i know why now but we'll oh. skip <laughs> we'll skip until later the suspense um, yeah well i mean it's not that suspenseful but like I after building one for Safari, I, I think I understand why people don't just automatically say, oh, yeah, I built this for Chrome. Now I'm going to do it for Safari. Right. Um, so. Then I thought, OK, fine, it's an open source project. I'm going to go look at that and see what I can do to just sort of like plug it into Safari. Um, Safari claims to give you a uh, CLI that does this for you, like automatically the look on your face tells me it does not (laughs) i mean i've never felt dumber using a cli i just like i couldn't it would be like you know and it was all the errors i was getting from it It had nothing to do with like trans trans uh, i don't know transpiling or whatever it was going to do from chrome to safari instead it was all like um 
you know, talking about how certain files don't exist and that I needed like valid paths or something like that. To, and I'm like, Yikes. I'm like, no, come on. Like, I know it's literally right there. I know how dot slash works. I was like, it's fine. I'll do the absolute path. No, it didn't work either. And then eventually I was like, you know, fine. No. fine. I will build this from scratch. So what <laughs> eventually what I did was, um, uh, just realized that you can go into Xcode, um, which is uh, already, I don't know why I was like, never mind. Like, this isn't that big of a problem. But, anyways, <laughs> look, it's Xcode, not, it would not be my first thought is to go to Xcode to build a web extension. Not for JavaScript. And I'll talk right. about maybe that later. But yes, I mean, Xcode's, I've used it before. It's, it's perfectly fine for what it's meant for. But in my mind, anyways, like, I just, I don't want to be writing JavaScript in Xcode. I don't no. think it's well suited for it. Um, so, I had to, you know, you go into Xcode, you can actually like, it'll just give you like uh, the scaffolding of a Safari web extension mm -hmm. if you want it. Um, and so I did that and uh, I was like, all right, fine. Now I'm in, I'm committed. I've got <laughs> clearly more time than I know how to use uh, in, a, in a smart way uh, during the holidays. So I was, I don't know. It's just one of those things you're like, I want, I'm scratching this itch now. I'm right. too invested. So I kind of kept going with it. And then I found myself in the, the, the world of uh, Safari web extensions, which turns out to be super interesting. And I thought that, you know, high level take is simply, you know, the let's build the web extension piece of it. Pretty good. Mm -hmm. the JavaScript APIs are nice. They make sense. Um, not always communicated in a way you know, like the front door documentation wise could all could be better. But I think <laughs> we seems all would... to be a common refrain with uh, <laughs> with Apple. Yeah. What's new? Right. So like we would know that that's going to be the case. But, you know, they they do kick you out to MDN docs pretty quickly, as I mentioned in the last episode. And those are quite good. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I kind of found myself like going down that path. The web portion of things is interesting. I think, you know, the parts that I found just confounding and I'm still totally know what's going on there is well you're in Xcode I assume partially because they want you to have all of these sort of like it, it, your 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 extension sort of gets encrusted is the best word I can think of <laughs> with all word. of these with all of these <laughs> native apps where I'm like so oh, I, I have my right. Xcode open here and I've got like a shared app I've got the extension great that's what I'm here for I've got the iOS app and I have the macOS app and I'm like mm, <sighs> you know I uh, I'm right. sure there, look, nothing happens without a reason, but that doesn't necessarily mean that like uh, on its face, like I'm going to, you know, just feel like, oh yeah, this makes sense. So for whatever reason, they've decided that they're going to make you go a native app route at some level. I don't think you, I have so far not had to touch the native apps even once while I'm doing this and I can get what I need out of it just mm -hmm. fine. But when you're in a development project that's been scaffolded for you and you have all of this, these other folders with this sort of native code that probably is there for a reason. Like it just makes me feel like I don't totally have control over everything I'm doing yet. Right. Yes. So that, that's kind of been, you know, I'm, this is a long way of saying that was my onboarding experience into this. I eventually found where I needed to go and I could build what I wanted to build. And we'll, we'll talk, I want to get into the actual web extension stuff in just a minute, but the, the amount of suspension of disbelief required to get to that point was kind of uh, surprising. 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, my my understanding, and I, I've never built an extension of any kind of any portion of history uh, on the web, right? And I know that there's been multiple iterations of this technology mm -hmm. over time. Chrome had its own way of doing it a while back. I guess now everything is under this web extensions standard um, that maybe Safari was one of the last browsers to pick up yeah. a few years ago. So never done any of that stuff on any browser. But my understanding has always been that, and, and maybe I'm totally wrong, but in Chrome, it seems like it was essentially you would write HTML, CSS, and JavaScript yeah. with a manifest, uh -huh. bundle that, and then you're off to the races, whatever that means for you. Right. right? That's always been my understanding too. And I, I, I think that's how it works for the Chrome extension store, right? Um, I, I, yeah, I wouldn't even, I would hesitate to guess, but that's just always sort of been my assumption. And, yeah. and by the way, like I, you know, there's part of me, well, no, I mean, yeah, I just, it makes it tricky to sort of imagine why I need all this other stuff. Now, the one thing that I would say to, you know, to, as a counterpoint <laughs> to everything I'm saying here about all these other like little encrusting pieces around my humble little web extension is there are certainly brilliant things that you can do with tying a web extension back into a native app. Oh yes. Yeah. Or have a native app that has a web extension that just like shows up as an option in Safari. Should you choose to enable it? Enable mm -hmm. it. So for, for example, like um, I use, I still use an RSS reader. <laughs> I use net newswire, which was um, brought back to life about four years ago. Sounds right. I love that app. I love it too. And it comes with its own extension. And it's, you know, if you install net newswire, then it can tell the system that it has an extension. And as far as I know, I never had to go into the app store and make a like unique, uh, uh, like go in and do a unique installation right. of just the extension. And yeah. those two work together quite brilliantly. I mean, it's a very simple by design kind of like, oh, I'm on a page that has a feed. The extension icon in Safari lights up and I can push that button and then it will let me maybe configure a few things optionally, hit mm -hmm. enter, and now I'm subscribed in the app. So I get that. That makes a lot of sense. But it just kind of feels to me like it would be ideal when you're doing something that's a little more like, you know, my use case, which is... Got a, got a bunch <laughs> of excess tabs. Let's get rid of them. Right. No app required ever, right. ever, ever for that. Right. Wow. Yeah. I mean, never mind that there's a lot of stuff that now you've just dumped on the machine and now I have to figure out the right spot to do all this code. But it also is like when it goes wrong and at some point I'm sure it will, there's all the stuff that now I need to know about in order to troubleshoot. Yeah. And, and troubleshooting. Uh, yeah. Because again, if I'm just in here troubleshooting HTML, CSS and JavaScript, I am now in Xcode, which is a foreign land, uh, at least with this language. And I'm reading error messages in <laughs> ways that I'm not used to. I don't have the tools <laughs> that I'm necessarily wanting. And so, you know, I, I look, very smart people have thought about this for a long time. Um, I'm sure there's reasons for why some of this stuff is is happening the way it is. But if all I'm trying to do is kill a few tabs, uh, I just I don't know. I, I I wish I had a bit more of a straightforward path. But at the same time, just one more counter argument: if you are uh, if you can kind of get over the I'm in Xcode, what's going on? You they basically bootstrap the whole thing for you, and you can just plug away at the JavaScript and HTML 
and at least have something locally working and never need to That's touch nice. on any of that other stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, again, at some point, like with all the app store thing and like, there's like these P lists and things that you got to deal with to plug yes. in certain information. And <laughs> I'm slowly cobble, like kind of hacking away at that stuff, but it's, I don't know if I'll actually ship my extension anyways. This is just mostly, wouldn't it be nice if kind of moment over the holidays <laughs> <laughs> and then, all right, fine, I'm going to do this. And then just kind of kept hacking away at it. And it turned out to be pretty fun. Like the actual coding piece of it, again, mm-hmm. JavaScript APIs are, from what I've seen so far, anything I want um, that I would expect to have here, I have. And Which I haven't nice. run into any walls. Yeah. That's super cool. Because um, then that means, at least at least for your purposes, like the the API is efficient, the the... I don't know if your your add-on uh, or your extension has any um, any UI, but in, in terms of that part of the experience, then you're not you're not coming up against artificial or or odd limitations in the API surface that are going to prevent you from doing what you need to do. Yeah, um, and mine does have a little bit of UI on it, but it's it's fairly minimal. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and have you have you worked with web extensions before? I'm I'm just curious um, to what extent you've you've seen what these look like under the hood. I have the only times that I that I have crossed into territory of what is inside a web extension is um, the occasional, or well, I shouldn't say occasional, um, the complaints whenever like the version of the manifest changes and certain things are limited in terms of permissions or whatnot. So I have a sense, a, a very rough sense of. Um, kind of how they're working. Um, but I have not written one myself. So um, I'm a noob. <laughs> so let's talk about what they look like under the hood from yes. just kind of structurally for a second. Um, I think for for you specifically, uh, given your background in crafting UXP for Adobe, you may find some of the stuff to be very much like something you're used to um, kind of like being a part of or, or mm-hmm. building on. So if we we're, we're not going to talk about any of the native stuff, so that stuff. Okay, ignore gone. the native. <laughs> we're we're down into a folder right now. So like, if you were to bootstrap your own um, in Xcode, uh, let's see here. You would have there's a top level application in Xcode. I'm just talking file like structure here. Mm-hmm. So file file structure and folders and stuff. So there's the top level application. Within there are a number of different folders. But the folder that has the actual stuff you want is in, it's called shared and has extension in parentheses after that. So shared extension, you <laughs> okay. open up that folder. Under that, there's a folder called resources. Mm-hmm. And within that, there is all of the web page or all of the webby things that you're that you're going after here. So, so I'm assuming HTML, CSS, the, the works. Yep. And it all starts with a manifest, which is a JSON file um, from at least what I. So another thing that, by the way, <laughs> Xcode kind of drives me nuts with a little bit is that like in Webland, like it, it just it truncates all of your file extensions. So you kind of have to. Oh, no, yeah, no, and, I mean, not, <laughs> not the worst problem. But I'm like, why? Why are you doing that? <laughs> so instead, you have to rely on the uh, the the file extension icon that prepends the file name, right? So you know in VS Code, for yes. example, like you got a JavaScript file, you might have like a cutesy little icon in front mm-hmm. of it to denote that it's JavaScript. And But it would still say, for example, like index.js. 
Here yeah. you will not get that. You will just, just get, get index. Yeah, for example. Oh, that would drive me up the wall. <laughs> so yeah, anyways, this is another parenthetical, but uh yeah, so you have a manifest file, it is indeed JSON. Um, and everything kind of starts and kind of starts there. That's mm-hmm. not only kind of telling the system basic facts about your uh web extension. Mm-hmm. It, of course, it does that, but it also handles permissions, which you just mentioned a second ago. We'll talk a little bit about that, perhaps. Um, but it also handles things like, um, you know, w- what way can this extension run in the background? Again, a topic that may come up in a little bit. Mm-hmm. And also, like, what triggers might this extension, like, kind of uh, throw out to say to the browser to say, hey, when this happens, oh, fire me up. Right. And so, so like life cycle kind of events. Indeed. Yeah. So in other words, like it's there are there are situations where you can basically once the users turned your extension on, it doesn't require interaction, user direct user interaction in order for the extension to be able to do something. Gotcha. And and that's exactly how mine works. Mm-hmm. Um so let's just I'll I'll focus on that. Um manifest piece just now since we kind of already went and then we'll kind of come back up and talk about some of the other files that are in the mix mm-hmm. but so let's say for example like uh in in mine like i just want to focus on closing all the the zoom tabs that are littering my browser on a daily basis so what you can do is there in your json manifest there's um like a content strip content scripts property <laughs> and that is an array <laughs> Uh Inside the array, there is an object that has a few things, but one of the properties that that array, uh, that object can have is called matches. And matches is going to be in itself an array. And there you can list URLs or URL patterns that would be considered a match and then therefore call the scripts associated with my extension. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly what I've done. Like if you were to look at my manifest inside of that top level content, uh, so it'd be like, think about it from like JavaScript syntax, it'd be content scripts dot. Um, so like, I'm not even sure if I'm going to say this right. It's going to be tough. So it's content scripts, like the first element of that array. Mm-hmm. Then you're going to, that first element of that array would have like a dot matches property. Mm-hmm. And inside of that, there's a whole bunch of URLs. There's like zoom.us slash post attendee there's zoom.us slash j slash star for some reason there's all these ones that i keep finding and i just kind of like throw it in there <laughs> keep adding to the list <laughs> there's probably another way to do it but my guess is you want to be pretty specific for something like this because ultimately what will happen in my extension is that it sees that it lets that play out and then as soon as possible which is a minute later that's a limitation web extensions have but it will it will come back in and close that tab so what you wouldn't want right. to do is like, I don't know if there's like a zoom.com or whatever their top level like marketing domain is, but you wouldn't necessarily right. want to have this fire off on <laughs> a website that the user is actually like trying to go to, to interact with. We're looking <laughs> or for worse, all... they have data that like somehow zoom matched like a, uh, uh, like they're editing content and now they've, you know, you totally obliterated their workflow. Indeed. So I'm trying to be a little more judicious until I, if I see like broader patterns that would be worth like, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe adding, but so that, that's the whole idea is in the manifest, right? Like the few things that I would call out that are specifically um, interesting is that. So having those URL matches uh, denoted as well as um, 
talking about host from like permissions mm-hmm. for a moment. Let's see. So not host permissions, sorry, but actual permissions. Um, a few of the ones that I had to grab uh, to request were scripting, which I guess makes sense because that's <laughs> primarily all this does is it's <laughs> scripting. So I, you know, I don't know a ton about what all these permissions mean yet, but I'm learning. Um, tabs is another permission that you can request. And that kind of makes sense. Yeah, you got to have it for this one because I'm trying yeah. to close them. Um, and then uh, a couple other ones will call out here. One is uh, it's kind of a special permission called uh, it's like an ang- like a uh, greater than less than brackets. It's just all URLs. And so this lets this is probably that like when whenever yeah. you install an extension and it says be careful because this one can see all the things that you know, all the web pages you're browsing. I would assume this is the permission under that the hood triggers that's triggering that. that. Yeah. The other one I've put in is storage, um, which just gets you the basic storage. But there is a new one uh, out there that we mentioned briefly last time called mm-hmm. un- unlimited storage. Ooh. Mine needs some storage, but <laughs> I suspect mine's mostly going to be like an integer or something like that. Like I'm I'm tallying just for funsies how many browser tabs <laughs> I've actually closed for myself or for the user. Nice. So, and that's that's the only part of the UI, by the way. So not an interesting part of this extension. Um, it needs to throw like confetti every so often. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And just like I, I want to see if there's a way to like assign some sort of like relatively informed time value to number of tabs I've closed for you on on, on automatically to say like this thing's closed 10,000 tabs over the last uh, six months and has saved you five minutes of time. Right. <laughs> That's amazing. So the last permission I wanted to mention is going to be uh, uh, related to another manifest property that I want to call out before jumping into more of the fun part, which is the code. So one of those, per- that, that last permission is called alarms. So alarms, right? Sounds alarms. Yeah. Oh my goodness, that sounds like oh, you need to be warned warned when a fire is happening. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting name they gave this, uh, but there's, uh, um, it's basically because the default scenario in the past for web extensions was that they were just running all of the time, consuming your resources uh, at, the, at a system level, right? And I'm on manifest manifest version three for my web extension, which means you can also opt into another top level property in your manifest called background within Hmm. background. There's a service worker property. Um, And if you, if you give, if you have service worker there and you assign it to one of your JavaScript files, what that essentially means, and there's a, a WWDC video out there that explains this much more eloquently than I'm about to. So we'll link to that as well. Um, But basically what that means is that the system can more aggressively kill your extension when it's not actively being used. Oh, nice. So like if it, if you're in a low power situation or it really needs to deal with, get your resources out of the way, you can opt into that behavior. Although, yeah, surely that that's probably the worst case scenario. My guess is that um, I would have to imagine that, Safari's probably even more aggressive with that probably. kind of stuff. <laughs> it is with all other web pages. So. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, exactly. It's like this Google Sheet is <laughs> to set your battery on fire, so we killed it. And it's like, okay. I mean, I appreciate it to be honest, um, but at the same 90% time, ninety percent of the time, but ten percent is like ah, part. Just... Part of me is like, also, yeah, but I'm kind of using the sheet right, right? now. Right. Exactly. So 
but yeah, so the responsible web extension would hopefully be using the, ser the service worker scenario. But here's the thing. In a world where your extension can be killed on the fly like that, then if you do something like um, a set timeout, you can't guarantee that that's ever going to get fired, can't you? That's right. And so like if I'm like exactly that. So if I'm in a world where I want to do something not immediately, right? Because, for example, I want to close all those Zoom tabs, but not so fast that they can't do the job of actually launching the host app. So I wouldn't kill them immediately sitting right there. And instead, right. I need to do some sort of set timeout. But I, I, need, I need it to happen later. But mm -hmm. I also need to acknowledge that this extension could be killed at any time. And probably if I had to guess, just knowing kind of like, again, the way Apple kind of tends to like really protect the system resources, I would assume that since my, my extension does not require user interaction at all, that it's probably the first on the chopping block because it's just right. running in the background. Yeah. Okay. So what that means is that you need another way. So and, and maybe there was a world in the past where there wasn't something, but now there's this thing called alarms. And what that is, is that permission that I requested in my manifest will let me come back. It'll, it'll let me essentially register with the browser to say, hey, when, when this alarm triggers, come back and run, or actually, sorry, fire off a, an event to my extension code. And then my event, my, my extension code is going to have an event for, or sorry, an event handler for uh -huh. that specific event. So we'll actually uh, talk briefly about that in just a moment once we're out of the manifest. But those were the high level callouts. Was really um, one beyond. I'm on manifest version three. I am uh, in. You know, my primary script is running in the background as a service worker, which means it can be killed at any time. Mm -hmm. The script itself or the extension itself is triggered in the background based on matches with URLs that I set in my manifest. And um, I have a list of permissions that include a number of different things. Uh, uh, but specifically, one of those important ones is since I am a service worker, I need, you know, if I ever want to do something in the future, I need the alarms permission. So I, I'm imagining the path to discovering the fact that you need all these permissions, especially like the alarms one. So f fun fact, normally that would have been like, so if you were just reading docs and kind of on a happy path and you build something and you think you're good, and then you're dealing with tons of like these really tricky, inscrutable like bug reports, that would suck. Right. What I did at the outset, uh, as I was kind of starting to dive into some of this was one, like, if you wanted to just say like, Hey, I want to build a Safari web extension. Like, where do you go to do that? There's no like Safari web extension.com kind of thing to go to. So I found myself like on WWDC's website, oddly, mm -hmm. uh, they have a series of three different videos, um, one for each year. And I, this seems to be, I'm not sure if you found this in your, um, Swift hacking, but WWDC videos seem to be canonical. Yes. So when you want to jump into something that's happening this year, they are going to give you breadcrumbs back to the first time they ever talked about that topic. And you would be, um, <laughs> you, you would be well served by going all the way back in time, even though it feels odd, um, and watch all of them. Yes. And so for web extensions, that's three because they just introduced this, like, I guess, what, two, 
and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. So it would be three WWDC. I don't know, something like that. Three right. years ago. Yeah. So I watched each one of them. And at some point, maybe in the third year when um, Manifest Version 3 seems to have been coming out, that's when they made a lot of, they put a lot of focus on that, <laughs> essentially, which is like one, do the background worker thing so you're, an, you're a responsible sort of citizen of the system, if you will. Mm-hmm. And then two, if you're going to do that, you need to write code assuming that it could be killed at any time. Gotcha. So the video material, you you had already been primed that, okay, this is something I'm going to need to to address versus discovering it organically. Yeah, I, I found with those three videos, like I, I, I ended up making a few notes in my notebook just to like, okay, they seem to be belaboring this point. There's probably a reason. And if I, you're not going to get everything you need from one of those videos in terms of knowledge to just turn around and build. So Great. Just put a stake in the ground to say, all right, alarms. They talked about that a lot. I should probably go find out why. (laughs) This is an area to do more research. (laughs) Exactly. And then, of course, like you can kind of follow the breadcrumbs from there. Started out in the Apple docs for a minute. And then they're eventually like, go read the MDN docs. And then the MDN docs have a ton of information on that. Right. So, yeah, that's a that's the manifest. Um, And then the primary bit of my script, again, like let's say, for example, you end up on um, one of those Zoom URLs that matches in one of the URLs or URL patterns that's in my manifest. Well, now background.js is going to get triggered. So before diving into that code for just a second, I guess I'll mention that the overall lay of the land when it comes to web extensions seems to be basically that there's, you know, the primary uh, mental paradigm, I suppose, is that like you're going to have a folder of magically named files Right. So manifest right. can't be called something else. It needs right. to be manifest. But there's a handful of other ones. And I don't know that these are renameable. Again, still learning the stuff as I go. But yeah. you're, there's like one called um, uh, background.js. Uh-huh. There's one called content. So background is just your extension is running a script, doing things. Mm-hmm. Content seems to be like this is the stuff I'm like the JavaScript that I'm injecting into the current page. So it's more interesting because it'd be a different context, wouldn't it? Yes. I don't have a lot of use for that in my extension, so I haven't played Mm -hmm. around with that at all. But you can pass messages, messages back and forth between background.js and content.js. Like message (laughs) passing, passing is is something that is pretty important to wrap your head around in order to get much done here. But the reality is for content.js, I think there's a lot of super interesting things to be done with that in other use cases. Mine really doesn't require it. Mm-hmm. You hit a URL, I'm going to go kill it in a minute. And that right. I don't need to know what else is on the page. Right. Now, maybe the one in, now that I'm thinking about it, and I heard you say earlier, like, what about if users said, like, entered some stuff and we don't want to go kill that? I suppose <laughs> I could actually go query the DOM to see, like, has this user, like, added oh. any data to an input? And if so, don't kill this one tab. That could be interesting. Yeah, especially if... If the the layout of a page like a Zoom page ever changes to have more stuff in it, then I could see that potentially being interesting. Yeah. So that's that's one of the other magically named files. And then the last magically named group of files are all pop up. You got your pop up HTML, pop up CSS and pop up dot JS. And that is the actual UI for so your extension equivalent then like. I, I like the way you're phrasing them, that, that these are magic names because we we use magic names all over the web too, like index.html. Um, that's the first thing the browser is going to try. So it feels like popup.html would be an extensions 
mapping to index.html for a web page? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, if you were to think about it in terms of now, again, like from so if you're thinking about it from a visual perspective, then yes, like because all the UI stuff right. is going to happen there now, but not lifecycle. Exactly. So in my worlds, like I actually spent 90% of my time in background.js. And then eventually it's like, ah, maybe I'll throw some numbers on uh, just for funsies, throw some numbers in the actual extension <laughs> UI. And then I did that. So mm-hmm. but but I, I, I agree with what you said, though, I think like, you know, for for most folks, if they're thinking about like at the end, the end game here is going to be some sort of like visual indicator or interaction surface for the user. That's all pop up. Gotcha. So yeah, you've got those three, um, but yeah, background content and pop-up. Pop-up itself comes with HTML and CSS variations. Um, background and content do not because they're just JavaScript. Mm-hmm. So basically for, for you know, just to kind of close out here, what I've done so far, like at the code level, it's really all down to background.js being cold. So when, when, when the browser matches one of those URLs to the manifest, one of the URLs that has been registered in the manifest. So you go mm-hmm. to some Zoom page, my extension has said, I'm, I want to know, please tell me when we land on one of those URLs. So what happens then is that all of this stuff on the background and probably maybe the content side, I don't know, but on the background side, it's basically event driven. So mm-hmm. you're, you're going to get like, you need to register um, an, a, an event listener on the global browser object. So it's browser.runtime.onmessage.addListener. That doesn't tell you which message you received. You would have to handle that in logic. But for example, like if I know that like basically anytime that's going to be called in my code, I could Uh naively just run the, hey, this is something that matches my URLs. Let's go remove it. So the, the bulk of what I end up doing is just listening for each one of those to be fired and say, okay, uh, we're on a, we're on a zoom sort of like interstitial page. Hey, extension, this just happened. And so what my extension will then do is create an alarm, right? Because I can't, I don't, I don't want to close that page immediately. That Mm -hmm. would be disruptive to the user, but I also can't do a a set timeout timeout because I can't count on that to ever fire because I'm a background worker and I could be killed at any time. So instead you call alarms are just on the browser object. It's browser.alarms.create. You pass it um, a tab ID and your uh, how, when in the future you want that alarm to fire off. Uh, So in this case, um, I put one minute, which is the lowest possible number for whatever reason. I don't so know, that's but that's as granular as you can get. It's like you can't say, give, call me back in four milliseconds. I mean, yeah. you're probably not killed by that point anyway, but that would also be resource intensive. So Chromium browsers document that as being like minute is the lowest. Mm-hmm. Safari is mum on the subject, but <laughs> I tried it and it's the minute is the lowest. Okay. So I just, I have a minute as an integer in there. So, all I'm saying, and uh, again, like when you do an alarms.create, I said you pass a tab ID. I think that's actually just an alarm ID. I'm doing using tab ID because what I'm going to do is take that yes. alarm ID and say, that's the tab. Yeah. So eventually a minute later, I have another event handler on uh, the on the alarm. So it's like browser.alarms.onalarm add listener. 
again, there you're going to handle everything in there. You can do the logic to figure out which alarm you're working with, mm-hmm. just based on name or whatever. And then I can go through and basically just say, um, I'm doing browser.tabs.remove, as simple as that. And the argument is the name of that alarm, <laughs> which maps exactly to that uh, tab, which is the tabs are just uh, integers, like the tab, oh, I- tab IDs. I was expecting something more complicated. <laughs> The only complication is that like which mix of these different methods and whatever else, like sometimes some of them are going to be strings and some of them will be numbers and you have to handle that. Um, it won't it, sort gotcha. of figure it out, but that's not really a gnarly problem yeah. to solve. You just kind of have to make sure Yeah, it's if it doesn't work. Initially, when it wasn't working, I was like, the first thing I'm going to check is like, wait a second, it's supposed to be a number <laughs> or an uh, or a string. What's the type? <laughs> yeah. Now, that does raise an interesting question in my brain. So if tabs are, if their ID is just a number, what if I close tabs in the meantime, like before, like in, in terms of sequence order, before the one that you're about to close? I want to learn more about this, but my experience with it so far has been that in any given, let's call it session, and we don't know what that means, just not like a web session, but uh-huh. in any given sort of like amorphous session, they they always just count up. Got so you. I don't know if like all of the tabs are reassigned IDs if you relaunch the browser or if it's like your OS or mm-hmm. I, I honestly don't know, but I had that same question and it what ends up happening is that Every new tab you create, even if you have deleted, say, tab 35, 35 is not going to be reclaimed at some point. You're just counting up. That has been 100% my experience with this so far. Um, I would love to see that in writing somewhere (laughs) to make (laughs) sure I'm not just imagining and kind of filling in my own blanks. But yeah, that's what I'm doing. Um, And so... When I close the tab, right, a minute Mm -hmm. later, that alarm is triggered. I have an event handler in JavaScript. It removes the tab. That itself is its own try catch. And then if it fails, great, we'll handle that. Mm -hmm. But if if it succeeds, then we move on. Now I'm just kind of for funsies again, tallying the number of tabs. So how do I do this? Well, and tallying is easy. Storing the data, not always is easy. So, I mean... In, in in the abstract here, though, it's actually quite simple. So um, basically, you have another tie catch right at the end that says, OK, now we're going to um, see if, um, you know, in the there's like a on the browser object, there is a storage object. So you would just go browser dot storage dot local dot get. And you're handling the stuff as if you're interacting with JSON. So you can oh, say, yeah, it's, it's not key value. Uh, or it's not string based key value. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like key value. I guess what I'm saying is like, I am not querying this as if it were a SQL database. Okay. That's the difference. In other words, like I can oh. call it .git and say like, okay, here's the ob- or the the property name that I'm looking for and I want the value for that back. Mm-hmm. And if it gives me, okay, that doesn't even exist, then I will create it. And, gotcha. you know, so it's like a... Um, so it's closer to local storage in the browser context. Pretty much, yeah. So that makes keep sense. it like super simple for this one. Again, I could request like infinite storage if I wanted to and do probably more fancy things with it with certain types of databases, but not required for this. Mm-hmm. So instead, I'm going to have exactly one sort of value stored. It's called 
in my script, it's called closed, but it's just an integer and it counts up every time. Um, and then, yeah, so that way, um, when in the, in the pop-up, right, for HTML, I just have a little bit of script in that uh, JavaScript file that just, um, what is this doing? So it, it, it queries that local storage database for the specific closed property that I want to use. Mm-hmm. And then it'll it'll print that you know um, just into into the pop up UI. So kind of kind of coming back to that entire flow, the manifest registers a series of URLs that I want to know about mm-hmm. if if the if the user hits them. When Safari says, "Hey extension that we've just hit one of those matches," then I can say, "Okay, great." I'm going to set an alarm and in a minute, trigger that alarm. Great stuff happens for 60 seconds, 60 seconds later, Safari says, okay, Hey, extension, you set this alarm. The alarm's now ringing. And then I can do more logic there, which ends up removing the browser tab. And then, um, you know, uh, just incrementing a tally in the local storage database in the browser. Separate from all of that, there is a UI that's just HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And if the user ever clicks on that, they're going to see how many tabs have uh, been closed to that point by this extension. And that'll survive user sessions and everything else. You know, there Mm -hmm. are ways you can go in and like delete that database in user land if you want to go digging into it. But um, for, for the most part, it's persistent in the way you would hope it would be right but that's pretty much all this does and um the fun part is again like you know when it comes to you know kind of like the background worker it's all just kind of like let's handle events Mm -hmm. now those events again you want to give them smart names so you're not just naively like okay an event fired i'm going to do some stuff you really need to know which event fired right but you that that's that's relatively trivial to sort of like set an event name and then ask, you know, use an if statement to check and see if you're dealing with that particular event or not. Um, But yeah, this was all like the actual core code of it. Once I finally got through the crusty um, deliciousness of (laughs) (laughs) Xcode and And Xcode around apps and PLIS and who knows what else like and found what I needed to do. This stuff was not that much of a heavy lift just to hack through. Um, I'm pretty sure that anyone who's a web developer would come in and do some really interesting mm-hmm. stuff with it. Um, it's just the coming full circle back to when I said earlier, I think I know why that extension did not exist. Yeah, why? <laughs> in Safari is there's just so many little barriers to put up, not least of which is $100 yeah. a year. Um, and oh, that's right. Yeah. You so, have to have a developer account, wouldn't you? Yeah. So I used to think that that was like the primary barrier. Um you know, which I get it. But at the same time, I think beyond that, there's just like all these other things you're going to have to juggle. And then, of course, uh, you know, you're going to have to get prepped to go into the app store if you were going to want to ship it. Now, again, you would have to do the same for Chrome or whatever else. Right. But the particulars of getting ready for the <laughs> Apple ecosystem are always like, all right, especially for a web developer, right? Yeah. Now, if you're an iOS developer, like at least that part of it may well be like, bread and your bread and butter but for a web developer coming in it's like i honestly don't know and i've actually shipped ios apps in the past written in swift i've done all of this but it's been years and so i kind of click through this and i'm just like all right which one of these fields do i need to fill out which thing is what where is all of it 
Um, you know, it's just one of those, it's a lot. So if you're someone who's like, well, I'm just going to make a manifest, write a JavaScript file for the, for a background worker, bundle that, write a little bit of metadata and ship it to some like Chrome thing or whatever. Like you can kind of start to see how like, all right, more people do that than this sort of, we just don't yeah. know how much it's going to take to actually get something like this shipped. Yeah. Cause I mean, maybe there are developers out there in Apple land that feel comfortable with the submission process 100% of the time. I am not one of those submitting is always one of those. I, you know, I uh, moments where I'm certain I have forgotten something big. I'm going to get a rejection. I'm going to have to go through all those rounds. And, um, it, you know, I, I don't look fondly on the moment when I have to hit the submit button and do all of that work. And like, there's lots of, if I remember right, the last time I did the submission is there's lots, not only is there a decent amount of metadata, but there's lots of um, images and of various sizes that I need to provide. And not that you wouldn't have to do some of that for the Chrome extension store. I'm sure you have to do some degree of screenshots and, and iconography and all that. But um, Apple has lots of very specific variations of it needs to be this size and this size for this device and all of these other things. And it turns into a lot. And so the more I think about it, yeah, the $100 is definitely going to stop some people. Um, I mean, we see it several times in terms of these Mac apps where say like, please excuse the fact that Mac OS is going to, to, to scream bloody murder when you try to open me, like go past gatekeeper because you have to pay for a certificate and all of that <laughs> jazz. Um, so that's already a huge barrier, but then like get into the submission process and it's non-trivial unless you've done it maybe a hundred times. If this is the first time you are faced with that, that's a pretty big hurdle to overcome. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because on, and what, one of the things is I, I feel very much at the beginning, at the outset of this, like, Oh, it's a lot to kind of get ready. Uh -huh. And you know, the review process is daunting, um, but I'll, I'll be the first to it like admit and own I myself in our, in a past yeah. life where you and I were working together, <laughs> we managed, had the same thing. <laughs> managed the review process yes. for an entire ecosystem. And so yes. I, I know what it takes uh, and I know the, you know, to, to do it. I know the challenges and the gray areas and their ecosystem is just a, so much bigger, quite yeah. honestly. Um, and more, and attracts more bad actors because mm -hmm. of the size. Right. So I'm, I, I don't, I don't, downplay the how difficult it is to do some of this stuff um but at the same time having a clear path to getting there for some of these more kind of basic things like something like this would be nice i'm not at all uh at a point where i'm thinking oh i would not do it because that feels like too much of a right. barrier to climb over right. i'm also not at the point where i think oh this is useful enough for the world <laughs> that i need to ship this and support it so <laughs> um so you haven't had to deal with that particular barrier just yet but yeah no i haven't i i did start thinking about it a little bit um but partially it was also just to like uh if I remember correctly, I was working on trying to get it installed maybe on my iOS device, which was a whole other thing. Because by default, when you bootstrap one of these things in Xcode, one of these things being a Safari web extension, when you bootstrap one, it makes a, um, like placeholders for both the iOS and macOS apps. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why the, the overarching 
packaging folder that you're working in all the time is called shared parentheses extension. Yeah, that it's makes it's sense. the shared code between the two. Um, but anyways, like I was trying to just see like, well, I don't even know if I want this on iOS, even for myself. I really want it on my Mac. And either way, I was like, well, I'll try it on iOS and see if that even works. It kind of sounds like a thing that wouldn't work on iOS, right? Where you can like set an alarm and then a minute later, like something happens that the user didn't like do with their finger. Like, right. That, usually they don't seem to exactly support that kind of we're going to take care of it for you interaction for the users when it comes to third party developers. Um, hmm. I feel like I it's funny, like because the iOS piece of this is like such a it's just not where my mind is. Like, I right. don't I don't think that's actually at least it's not a problem I have. So I don't really care about that part of it. As totally. Much. So I, I don't remember, but I think it was working. Um, my bigger question, of course, was. Huh. How do I turn the iOS part of this whole thing <laughs> off? Like what I would rather Don't have. Need it, right. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the whole thing. I was like, that's another thing. If I ever decide I'm going to ship this, how do I not have the iOS thing be a part of it? Because I just, you know, maybe at some point I'll be like, oh, of course I need that. But right now I'm mm -hmm. like, no, I'm trying to solve a problem on my Mac. That's what I care about. Uh, and it's not super clear to me in like, where's the turn off iOS portion of your app button in Xcode? <laughs> or, or is that another reason that why why some of these things aren't getting going all the way to getting published in the store is is do you have surely you don't have to do them for both like there would be cases where like uh, I mean I'll be upfront this has never been a problem for me on an iOS device it's always on my desktop machine so like why would I need it on my iOS device exactly and there, there's definitely a way to turn it off it's just that like nowhere is it's not it documented. documented that it says like because or clearly anyway because I I think a lot of people don't like in in fairness a lot of people are not like finding themselves in Xcode land because they were doing this right so like Fair. my questions I'm I'm willing to assume are questions that would have naturally been internalized by a Apple ecosystem developer over the course of time. Mm -hmm. Whereas I accidentally found myself here because I was like, <laughs> how do I write the JavaScript file like to do a thing in Safari and then found myself in Icecode. Right. So that's one of those things where there's probably just um, some probably fairly fundamental or foundational learning that I need to do about this. But to your point, these kinds of things are, I, I suspect exactly why you just don't see it as many, you know, the extensions popping up in Safari, um, just because it's not, it's not a one-to-one -one kind of like you wrote this for Chrome, therefore now you're going to get a Safari extension. Actually, there will be hoops to jump through. Which, uh, if I remember the hoopla about, oh, Safari can, you know, now, now follows the same standard. It, like my immediate takeaway from that with an asterisk was, oh, great. That means like we'll, we'll suddenly see an influx of all of these great Chrome extensions. They'll just work. Um, clearly the asterisk, asterisk is no, this is, I mean, Apple is still Apple. They're, they're thinking about more than just the experience of the extension itself. They're thinking about the ecosystem. And of course there are going to be more, a few more steps to actually turn that on. Um, and that is, uh, not always the most obvious thing when you hear hear that initial bit of like, oh, Safari supports Chrome extensions. Like Xcode did not enter into my brain. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I was the same when they when I heard that that was going to happen more than anything. As a web developer, I was kind of excited. Maybe someday I'll try this. That was years ago. I've just finally gotten around to it. Uh, but more than anything, I was excited to see like maybe a little more invigorization of mm-hmm. that extension ecosystem. And, you know, it's not to say like on, on one front, I feel like I don't see the extent to which I thought I might. On the other front, the extensions I use are all relatively bulletproof. I think they're all fantastic. Um, yeah. I thought maybe right towards the end here before we close out, maybe just do a roll call of some extensions that that we like. I mean, I know, I don't think Safari is your daily driver. So maybe this turns into a bit more of like, what kind of web extensions do we like in general? But at least for me, like I thought I might call out like a handful of just, um, and yeah. I, don't, I don't use a lot of extensions. Um, I've always, you know, on one front, I like the idea of them, but on the other front, I try to be, a little conservative about which ones I'm putting on my machine or in my browser. Uh, but I have a few that I thought I'd call out. Do you have any? Um, yes. Uh, Safari is the one it is, is my daily driver. Oh, too. okay. Um, I've got a couple. Um, let's see, see, if, see if they um, uh, land in, in, in your same uh, realm. Um, I've, I've got ghostery. Um, ah, I have alternatives to that. I used to have Ghostery. Yes, that's yes. a good. That's a good one. Uh, Ghostery is on there. Um, I have um, at various times um, also had like DuckDuckGo, some of the privacy stuff that they that they've got got there. Um, I have a Net Newswire. Subscribe to Feed. That one's an absolute requirement, especially right? like a lot of websites these days. Don't just say like, "Here's the link or the URL for your RSS feed." on that site. And so having that extension there really is the difference between like being able to subscribe and it just being too burdensome. Yeah. It has to be like seamless. Um, just a click will do it. If I have to do extra work, it's not happening. Um, and then one of the ones that I have, and this is, this is, um, one of the areas where it's nice on both iOS and the desktop, um, for my Reddit browsing experience, I use an app called Apollo really love it. Um, and they have an extension that is open in Apollo. And so I have the app installed on my M1 machine because, uh, the Apple or the iOS version of it works just fine on the, on the M1 Macs. So the extension is running in there. Whenever I open a Reddit app, I get the nice Apollo version uh, of looking at Reddit. Um, but the same thing is true on my, on my iPads. If I go to a Reddit site, it'll pop up Apollo for me. Um, that one is actually probably one of my most used aside from any of the ad blocking slash privacy stuff that is just always running in the background. Um, because the, the default Reddit experience is just atrocious on, on mobile. Um, so I'm happy to have it go launch Apollo for me. I think this may push Apollo over the edge for me and I'm finally going to try it. <laughs> uh, you know, like it's, um, if I remember correctly, th- there's an- another podcast I listened to called, uh, upgrade and uh sorry i don't know why i was blanking on the name but they do like a user award every year and Mm -hmm. recently like the user awards have seemed to go in one of their categories is always apollo so i keep hearing about it um i'm not the most proficient reddit user i I do get on um but maybe i'll try that out uh especially now that you mention it yeah oh i love i love the app and and i'm 99.9 percent of the times when i when i'm going to reddit I want it to be in Apollo. There's a few times when I don't, and that can be a little bit challenging because, of course, the extension doesn't know any better. It's just going to launch Apollo for me. 
Um, so occasionally it's like, no, I really do want this one in the browser because maybe I'm going to do some fun copy paste. But um, it is that's that's probably the, my second used extension um, in my experience. That's cool. Um, okay, so for me, we definitely had some overlap. I'll, I'll, I'll maybe mention a few of those just in, in passing um, on the way. First up, and for me, first and foremost, is this: uh, it's an extension and app. Uh, so again, it is one of those combinations. Again, uh-huh. definitely not dinging the combination of native app plus extension because there's some fantastic ones out there. Mostly yeah. just saying, I don't want to have to do that if I. that's not what I'm trying to do. Um, but either way, like uh, first one up for me is a one blocker, the number yes. number one. They're really interesting. And one thing I I, I I hope this isn't a feature that's like been there for a long time and I just noticed it. But uh, so they do all of like the the web tracker blocking and that kind of stuff. Um, but in addition to that, they've started with something. So it, it's I always find this interesting, Carrie, like people will talk about, oh, suddenly the entire universe is like discovered that like Facebook and every, every other web app is <laughs> tracking them. Uh-huh. Well, okay. Yeah. That's always been the case. And um, you know, that's not great, but like, that's not like a web app versus native app thing. Native apps have tons of that kind of stuff in them too. You just can't like really see it as easily. Right. Yeah. But um, I, so I never really knew what to do about the native app piece of it, but one blocker has, a thing in there that will block like the in-app tracking as well. Essentially, my understanding, a layman's understanding of what it does is it, estab- it it basically like puts a VPN profile on your, but the VPN <laughs> oh. profile is local. So Interesting. W- what it does is it just kind of filters out all of these things that are known at, like at trackers and that kind of thing. And you can see it like what's being blocked in real time when you have it on in the app. That so, might actually be a little bit scary. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, like realizing of, how many things are, are, are calling home. Well, yeah, and that's the whole thing. I, I, I always laugh because like people like really hit on like websites and web apps as being like these sort of like, oh, they're tracking everything. But no, that's like that's code. I mean, like and yes, and, and it's just apps. And so I don't know how native apps have always like kind of gone. on, But I, I knew this and just never knew what to do about it. But I guess whoever builds one blocker. um. They've actually been quite nice to interact with. I had to, I pay, I've pay for it and mm-hmm. um, I needed to reach out about something related to billing and they were like super wonderful to deal with. So anyways, nice. um, I don't know them, but um, I've been using one blocker. I mean, I feel like I've been using it since ex- basically since extensions became possible on iOS Safari. So it's been a long time now. I mean, six, seven years, maybe. Sounds about um, right. Yeah. yeah. So one blocker, highly recommend. Uh, the other one I use that's also kind of like a get all this crap out of my browsing experience is a thing called super agent, uh, which if you're (laughs) my, so there's like a node module called super agent that like mocks, like, I think it's like HTTPS responses or I don't remember exactly what it does. So that's the thing I'm used to thinking of. This is not that Mm -hmm. it is. It gets all of the (laughs) cookie related nonsense out of your face. Nice. Don't bug me with this stuff. No one cares. That you know may be I mean? an auto like, install for me. Oh yeah. I mean, I don't ever. I almost never see those things anymore. <laughs> uh it just. Uh, we all. I mean, come on. Like again, like the cookies stuff. Like it's whatever the right answer was for this. Like that. That the, whatever law is forcing that was not it. It just made the web suck eternally. So super agent. Um, 
puts the power back in your hands. And it just like, you know, again, like track me, don't track me. Um, I have other mitigations for some of that stuff. Uh, I don't know. Someone sitting in Europe somewhere may have, you know, deep disagreements with me on this. And that's, mm-hmm. that's totally okay. We all have different points of view, but for, for my purposes, what I, what I needed from the web was not more things popping up while I'm trying to read something. Right. So, or, you know, other dark patterns of like, now it's like the only way for me to like not take every cookie is to click three layers down. So super agent does away with those. I don't know what it's doing exactly. Some websites will occasionally get wise to it. And then they'll, I think <laughs> stack overflow if I remember right is one of them now. And of it'll course. give you an alternative, alternative warning, but you can report it to super agent. And like, <laughs> sorry, uh, I'm on the side of don't interrupt me. Exactly. That's, and, yep. and also like, don't load more stuff than, than, than I need for the thing I asked for. Uh, so between one blocker and super agent, I feel pretty good. Um, and maybe if, I'm being naive. Someone can tell me why, but uh, I, I like these two. The last one that's more of just a, a user thing. So you mentioned Net Newswire. I won't. That this will be its third call out on this episode alone. <laughs> Net Newswire is great uh, if you like RSS, and you should like RSS. Yes. Um, so the only other one I'm using right now is one called. Uh, uh, obviously, I use one password, but no need to go into details on that one. That's kind of just always there. Uh, and then uh, I'm using an app called Good Links to handle I'm, I'm trying to actually i've tried to turn a new leaf and not always have 200 browser tabs open so i'm getting better at not <laughs> using tabs as a way to save things for the oh, future this some nice. future that never comes and good links is just like this nice little app i think it was like five bucks on the app store it works on mac and ios um i don't think they were separate purchases but even if they were five or 10 bucks, not that bad to like have a way to manage your links because I I've been a long pen board user. It's like mm-hmm. I was in on there. You pay based on the number user you are <laughs> where like it would go up. It would increment a penny every time. This is, I, I, I bought my uh, pen board instance in like 2010. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, but I, I don't know. Like it's, it's, it's super flexible but at the same time, like just not quite like the things I want from it would be ecosystem plays and I never see them come about. Yeah. Good links is kind of nice because I can basically say, okay, uh, this is a tab I have open. I, there's nothing to do with it now. At some point I'd like to find it later. I need to stash this somewhere. Um, but pin boards never quite worked for me as a destination to do that. Um, maybe it's just because it's very web point one, web, web, web 1.0 kind of mm-hmm. thing. And then I don't want to ding pinboard at all um it's just you know i at some point you got to own up to yourself like when something you're trying isn't working and so i'm like right. well for link management maybe i'll move on to something else and, and good links um at least for now has been that i i can't vouch for it over the long term but you know in the last couple of months i found it super useful well that looks i mean it looks really interesting um i'm gonna be excited to try that one too um so i've got a couple more things to try out of today's uh, podcast, but um, that's always been kind of, um, it'll be interesting to see how it solves the problem or, or addresses the problem I've kind of had with bookmarks. Um, Cause ostensibly like that should be the problem bookmarking solves. And yet I never remember to bookmark. And when I do, I never remember to go back to them. Yeah. You need a full app to that experience. It can't yeah. be, I, I mean, I've, I, I've long felt this was really important and that's why I paid for Penboard when I did 13 years ago. Uh-huh. You, you can't have your bookmark management 
like that's that's like essential knowledge management for yourself right. over the course of your life. I mean, it, it just is right. And so mm-hmm. you can't have it relegated to a drawer on the side of your browser. Yeah. That's not good enough. You need you need ways to interact with that stuff whether it's tagging, whether it's making lists, whether it's like kind of just having, you know, tracking what's been read and when, like, it just needs to be this very flexible sort of like UI on top of a database, if you will, that you can just like let it take over your whole screen if you need to. Um, And no browser ever has uh, come anywhere close to (laughs) what I felt was necessary. Pinboard was the first thing you know, post delicious that I ever saw. I don't know if you, you remember delicious yeah, like way yep. back in the day. Yeah. Wow, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah. Holy bought, crap. Bought, bought and killed by Yahoo and then repurchased by Pinboard actually. Um, really? Much later. Yeah. I mean the name. Uh, so yeah, Pinboard's got a pretty interesting history. Uh, if you ever get bored and want to read about it, but like it's anyways, like one of those things where you need a dedicated surface that is a, got dedicated development and design time on the Mm -hmm. problem of like plunging into the depths of what you have done on the web to be able to find things in different ways, slice it and dice it. I mean, you think of it like your photo library or something that goes back for 20 years and like, you know, so anyways, um, good links. Again, I, I'm I'm not saying Goodlink solves all of that. I really just would. I don't know. It may well. I'm still pretty new to using it. But what I can say so far is I just have never had a better solution for it. So I try to keep my eye out for something new. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to try a couple of these because they they sound. I mean, at a minimum, I'm I'm always kind of on the lookout for some interesting web extensions anyway, um, to improve my workflow. And these sound like they're right up my alley. Well, cool. Um, so, Carrie, this was an absolute marathon session. Um, I <laughs> it think got car- carried away with a few things, but um, I don't know. I had a lot of fun and uh, yes. learning about how the whole uh, the codathon thing went with uh, we connect the dots. So, congrats on wrapping that up. Congrats to all your students, uh, and that sounds like a really cool thing to be working on. Talked a little bit about web uh, web extensions and then a little bit about like both building them and then about like using them or and our favorites. So pretty cool little session. Um, but I don't know anything else on your mind before we uh, close out this uh, maybe our longest episode ever. Uh no, aside from the fact that I feel like number one, I could actually maybe think about go writing an extension, having gone through this, just having the the higher level stuff. And um, I have um, so many questions that is like, I, I, it'll be interesting to revisit this. Like, should you ever post it on the store or what have you? It's like, okay, what other areas did one run into that maybe one wasn't expecting or areas of improvement um, to like the developer experience and things like that. But um, I, I'm super excited to to maybe dig into that some more. Yeah. And if you dive in, I totally want to talk to you about that because I think it'd be a lot of fun just like in, yes. a, in a side channel to chat out your experiences. And to the extent that I have answers for your questions, I'm, I'm more than happy to share that knowledge because, you know, it's going and installing something is fun, but hey, I'd rather be scripting. Thanks for listening to this episode of I'd Rather Be Scripting. If you love scripting, terminals, Z shell, JavaScript development, and other random technology tangents as much as we do, we'd love to hear from you. You can always leave a review on your preferred podcasting platform, or you can reach out to us via the social links on our website, 
idratherbescripting.com. Until next time, I'd rather be scripting.